Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy, and I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been chronicling my life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety eight years ago. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And as you've noticed, I've been away a little bit this month. A few weeks ago, my husband and I went to the Grand Canyon. That was amazing. And, uh, and then more recently, I traveled with my mom and my two sisters, and we went on a river cruise. And this is the second time we've done this. And that was also absolutely incredible. And let me tell you, if sobriety ever serves you well, it is when you are traveling with your family of origin in another country. <laughs> We all got along very well, but uh, I must say that there's lots of times where I thought, whew, good thing I'm not drinking or I might not behave myself. Uh, furthermore, I want to share with you listeners that I am on baby watch right now. My third grandchild is due to be born uh any day here. The due date is in a couple of days, but the doctors are saying it could be any time. And I have a little bag packed beside my bed in case I get a call in the night that I need to run up the street and stay with my grandchildren while their mom and dad go to the hospital to bring home the new baby. And again, I'm grateful for my sobriety every time I go to bed and know that if I get a call in at 3 a.m., I will not only be alert enough to answer it, but I will be sober and just in fine shape to run up the street and take care of what I need to take to. So the gifts of sobriety keep on coming long after we get sober. I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest. I spent the morning on her website and it's absolutely fantastic. I want you all to meet Casey McGuire Davidson of Hello Someday Coaching. And Casey is a certified life coach who specializes in helping successful yet less than completely fulfilled type A women get out of the overwhelm mode and create lives they love. She's also a wife, a mom, a practical dreamer, a recovering corporate ladder, ladder climber, retired people pleaser, ex-wine red wine drinker, who's been known to crawl into bed at 9 p.m. and whisper, don't worry, you're still a badass to herself. Her website is uh, Hello Sunday Coaching, and she is the creator of a fantastic resource 
that I wish I'd had on my first day of recovery. And frankly, it's got a tip sheet that is still helpful to me even now. It's called the Sober Girl's Guide to Quitting Drinking, 30 Tips to Get You Through the First 30 Days. Casey McGuire-Davidson, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Oh, thank you so much, Jean. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, you have a great story, and you've also I can I can tell just from looking at your website that you really have a passion for helping people, and your website's absolutely beautiful. And I was I was telling you before we began recording that you know a lot of the resources that are out there are sort of like old uh, older. They've been created a long time ago, and they look like really serious, and like this is all about serious stuff. And your website just reminds us that this is about having fun and living life to the fullest. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I kind of found the same thing when I was quitting drinking. A lot of it was pretty daunting and dire and serious. And the first time that I tried to quit drinking, I sort of have had two sustained attempts about six years ago, I, um, for the very first time, realized that I had a problem with alcohol and needed to quit in 2013, which was at the time, like, my worst possible scenario <laughs> in my life that I, that I could concept. And I went through sort of the traditional um, advice and help and steps to quit drinking, um, which I can talk about. Uh, they were super helpful. I gained a lot of knowledge. But they didn't really jive with my philosophy about who I was and how I wanted to live my life and even my, my thought around quitting drinking. And when I finally successfully stopped drinking in 2016, um, it's been about three, three or three months now, um, I really opened my eyes to all these different ideas around what quitting drinking could mean for me and for other people and how it can be a really positive um, way to live your life and how it can make your life so much better and how you take care of yourself. And that's kind of what I wanted to put into my philosophy of quitting drinking. And one of the reasons I went back to, to school to become a life coach, because it's really coaching is really about taking you from where you are right now to where you want to be. And it's really goal oriented and positive and supportive. And that's what helped me quit drinking. Um, and thank you so much for mentioning my website. I really appreciate it. I also, I have a, a website that's just sobriety related because I do a lot of other coaching as well. And that one is the sobrietystarterkit.com. And that's where folks can get the guide, the 30 tips for 30 days. Um, I haven't yet added it to the Hello Someday coaching site, but I will. Oh, okay. I've been hopping back and forth between the two of them. <laughs> and they're both excellent. Um, so sobrietystarterkit.com, and that is the home of the 30 tips for 30 days sheet. Yes. So we're going to talk about that a lot. Um, but first, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us about your story, who you are, and how you came to be where you are today. Oh, okay. Great. Um, well, first... I did want to say thank you, Jean, for hosting the Bubble Hour and keeping it going and coming on every week or two um, because it really helped me when I first was struggling with drinking and thinking about quitting. I somehow found the Bubble Hour. I don't even remember how I found it, but 
um, I was feeling so low and so fragile and kind of lost and uh, listening to the bubble hour and hearing the stories of women who sounded so sure and calm and solid and were funny um, was it was a total source of hope for me. And I also remember listening to it um, just really vividly. I would put it on in my car when I left work um, to try to get my mind right, to try to, to steal myself, to not stop to get wine on the way to pick up my son from daycare. And, um, you know, it's crazy for me to think of now, but six years ago, it was just almost impossible for me to think about not having a bottle of wine in the house and not drinking every evening. And the bubble hour was really my first tool that I used to, to, you know, try to fortify myself um, in my resolve to not drink that night. So it was so helpful. And um, thank you. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, Before you go on, tell me why you think it is that storytelling has the power that it does because the bubble hour we're not doing anything magical and as far as podcast goes like i have no post-production no nice transition music none of the like the good classy things that a nice podcast is supposed to have so to me it is all about storytelling and why do you think that that is so helpful well for me and this is crazy to think of now but Back in 2013, I literally did not know a single person who had quit drinking, or at least I didn't think I did. Um, I think it's pretty common to surround yourself with other drinkers. Um, not everyone drank like I did, but everyone I knew and I hung out with drank. And that was probably by design. Like I remember occasionally meeting people who didn't drink and I literally was like what the heck's wrong with these people like aren't they fun aren't they cool like I couldn't I could not wrap my head around what they did at night if they didn't drink like did they just sit there quietly staring at each other which now sounds crazy but just the variety of women on the bubble hour and people who aren't drinking and hearing their stories that sound so much like mine Um, even if their stories are different, sort of the feelings and the emotions are like mine. And also, um, you know, just hearing how they quit and life did go on and that it won't always be as hard as it is now, that you won't always be, you know, feeling like, you know, you stopped drinking and you're 16 years old and you lost your privileges and dad took your car keys away. That's not what it's about. (laughs) You know, like just it's, it's about you making your own life better and making that choice. Um, And I also think in early sobriety, you just really need to immerse yourself. Um, There are so many messages that surround us every single day, basically telling us to drink and, um, you know, it's everywhere. Like literally anything that happens, people are like, oh, you deserve a glass of wine. Mama needs wine. You know, I mean, it's everywhere. Um, and you need to, you know, almost reprogram your brain because that type of thinking is kind of messed up. And yet it's what's around us. So sort of immersing yourself in the world of podcasts and sober audiobooks and, and, you know, just a different way of thinking about drinking was huge for me. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're thirsty for it in those early days too, that we're, you know, drinking just isolates us so much. And like you say, by yeah. design, we, we slowly edit our friends, our circle of social <laughs> influence to only include people that suit us. And, and, and I really think that our addiction is really driving those, those choices on a subconscious level so that it can be supportive in, in what it feels like we've taught ourselves we need to do to survive. Right. And it's hard to undo that. Yes. So yeah. um, it's like, to me, I, I sort of feel like all of these things are like the thin edge of the wedge that slowly breaks open our world <clears throat> and, and brings us back to just taking the blinders off and, yes. and starting to redesign our lives a little bit. See, I'm getting yes. ahead of myself. You've got, I'm getting okay, ahead of myself. Sorry. I need to, <laughs> I just want to have this conversation with you about all these great things you can teach us. But first, Casey, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us your story. All right. All right. Um, So my story is that um, I started really drinking in college. Um, Before that growing up, I guess I was very much sort of a quote unquote good girl. Um, I was a huge people pleaser. Um, My parents had jobs in the U.S. Foreign Service, so they were – diplomats at embassies overseas. Um, So from the time I was born, my family moved every two or three years to a new country and a lot of times to a new continent. We spent a lot of time in Africa and South America. And so growing up, I remember my parents were really busy. Um, They had work, they had dinner parties and events, and um, my sister and I uh, were very much on our own to um, be the new girls in a new school, in a new country, in a new culture. And um, I learned pretty quickly that it was easiest on me. My life would be easiest if I just tried to fit in kind of as quickly as humanly possible to whatever situation I was in. And so that meant I was always trying to read a group and mold myself into whatever form would be most acceptable and I felt very on my own and I felt very much like I needed to be okay, that my parents needed me to be okay uh, because their jobs were important and they were busy and this was just our lives. This was the way our family worked. And um, I felt like it was on me to make a new situation work, which is really, really hard when you're six years old and eight years old and 10 years old. And um, then After my 14th birthday, right afterwards, I went off to boarding school. Um, My parents moved to different continents, actually, at that time for a year. My dad was in Africa. My mom was in Brazil. My sister was in a boarding school in a different state. And at boarding school, I loved it, but I felt even more on my own. Like, there was no one around me who was supposed to love me unconditionally. And I felt like I had to be super self-sufficient. Um, which kicked my people pleasing into like super high gear. Um, I know a lot of people drink in high school and experiment, but it was not that way for me. I was pretty terrified of getting suspended or expelled um, by breaking the rules. And there were just a lot of rules against drinking or smoking. And I felt like if I got into trouble, I literally would have nowhere to go. Um, So I was, it was really hard for me to relax Um, and shut my mind off like ever (laughs) I was just always trying to be good and get good grades and not be a problem to anyone Um, 
to sort of secure my place and to be allowed to be there. And when I got into college, it was the first time that I felt like I could drink without fear of expulsion um, or suspension. And beer was everywhere. And I drank. And I absolutely loved the way it made me feel. Um, It got me all soft and fuzzy. Um, It made me feel relaxed, maybe for the first time in my whole life. Um, I was so anxious and eager to please everyone up until that moment. And it turned off my brain. And it let me stop trying to read a room and make sure people liked me. Um, If I'm honest, it was probably because I was, you know, half drunk, reclined on a couch. But, um, you know, felt good. So I'm cool with that where I was. Um, And I played sports all through high school. And when I was in college, my freshman year, I found the women's rugby team. I don't know if anyone else out there plays rugby, but, you know, let me know. Um, Aggressive. Totally. <laughs> I know, right? Like, it was – I loved rugby. It was amazing to me. Um, it combined sort of, like, exercise and sports solidarity and a team that had your back, but it also – this, like, team drinking and social socializing um, that I thought at the time was, like, really cool. Um, On the rugby team, it was almost a goal, and it was not a very subtle goal, by the way, at all, um, to drink to the point of throwing up or blacking out or becoming totally out of control and incapacitated. Um, There were drinking fogs, and there were keg stands and keg runs, and we had, um, you know, there were games where you literally would stand in line with your teammates against the other team's line, and one by one, try to chug a beer as fast as humanly possible. And the team that finished all the beers first won. Um, I kind of secretly wonder if anyone else from my rugby team also quit drinking because it was just a breeding ground of um, binge drinking and problem thinking about drinking. Um, but for four years, I went right along with it with my rugby team. Um, I was shockingly happy to boot and rally, which was this thing where it was this really strange badge of honor if you puked and then just kept on drinking, like everybody would cheer you on. Um, And nursing hangovers and stumbling home to the dorms. Um, In a weird way, I actually really thought it kind of balanced me out, Um, (laughs) which looking back is totally messed up. But the team sports and the heavy drinking, I somehow thought kind of balanced out my overthinking and anxiety and people pleasing. And I was pretty happy in college. Like I was very glad to be there and, um, you know, pretty successful, shockingly in a weird way. Um, but once I graduated college, I was on my own again. Um, I moved down to Washington DC and I got a job as a as a management consultant and um, I was on my own and my, right after I graduated, my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and had a pretty dire prognosis. Um, And I, you know, just my anxiety and isolation kind of kicked into high gear again. Um, I used to drink red wine at night when I was watching TV to relax and I felt very grown up. Um, I thought I was doing what grownups did, uh, but I also had a lot of instances of just waking up at three in the morning and throwing up for like eight hours straight, like just laying on the floor of my bathroom, sweating. I lived alone 
and just throwing up yellow bile for hours and hours. Um, and it's crazy, but I didn't think too much about it. Like, I can't believe it now. Um, I clearly was just poisoning my body. And, um, you know, I told a few people about it. And my mom over the phone at one point was like, Casey, maybe you need to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol. Um, which I just made into a joke. Like for years, that was like my line. I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> so that was awesome. Um, but it kind of it's such a good line too. That's the funny yeah, thing. You, you, like just, that you weren't ready to hear it, right? Right. Well, in college too, my dad loved the movie Animal House. You know that movie? Yeah. And <laughs> the family line, you know, there's a line in there. The family line was my advice to you is to start drinking heavily. And we pulled that one out for anything that happened. Um, right. It literally was a family joke. And by the way, nobody else in my family drinks like I do. Um, nobody. My dad didn't, mom, sister, like, but I just was like anything that happened. I was like, my advice to you is to start drinking heavily. Um, <laughs> so those were, those were two of my great lines. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, but you know, my first job, I think it's me in retrospect, but I had a lot of anxiety about it. I was a management consultant. Um, I was this 23 year old girl in a bad fitting suit who would be like flying up to American express and trying to tell them how to run their business based on, um, the little bit I knew doing competitive intelligence on visa or whoever the competitors were. And I was so nervous about it that I would drink the night before a trip, a business trip, so that I would be so hungover the next day when I was getting on the plane and flying to the meeting that I couldn't be nervous because I was trying so hard not to throw up, um, which is crazy. Like looking back, I was like, oh my God, I would have been so much better served to go to a therapist and get my anxiety in check um, rather than like, you know, being trying not to puke at every business meeting. Um, but I didn't see it then. And I was like, oh, maybe this is good. It activates a different part of my brain. I'll try not to puke, but I won't be nervous in the meeting. Um, but I, you know, I wonder now, of course, how much I held myself back from success by just self-sabotaging at every moment. Um, but then I met my husband and we moved out to Seattle from DC and I moved from consulting to startup work to big companies, and my drinking just continued. Um, I didn't really feel like I drank more than everyone else, but I also kind of assumed that everyone drank like I did. Um, I was a very much self-identified red wine girl. Um, we had dates and wine bars and happy hour pub crawls, and my husband and I did weekends in wine country, and we lived on this awesome floating home in Seattle and would kayak out to the middle of the lake and I would drink a bottle of wine and he would drink beer and we'd watch the sunset. Um, we'd have mimosas on our floating home deck on the weekends, like go to dinner parties with friends where we'd each sort of consume a bottle of wine per person. Um, you know, I'd go to kayak camping with my girlfriends and we'd bring those like bladders of wine, you know, from the box wine to like drink all weekend on this island in the San Juans and um, do talent shows and pretend we were 16 years old. But I was clearly drinking every single night. Um, you know, if I was drink working late at work, I would run over to the grocery store and bring a bottle of wine back to my office 
and kind of be like, well, if I was working, if I was, you know, working till 9 p.m., I'd be drinking at home. So it's totally cool if I'm drinking here. Um, I just didn't know how to not drink at night. I thought it was fun. And I'd really punish myself um, the next day. I would wake up at 3 a.m. with anxiety. Um, and I really did not figure out until I quit drinking that the 3 a.m. wake up was something that all drinkers go through. Like, I did not know. I thought, like, something was, oh, I have so much anxiety and my dad's sick. And, like, isn't it crazy that you don't realize that's associated with drinking? Yeah, it is. Um, I don't know if it's denial or just lack of information. Yeah. Like, for me, I think it was just lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was so far from the world that, um, I don't know, I I – you know, basically thought it was like stress, anxiety, my job's so hard, you know, anything except drinking. And yeah. I'd punish myself the next day too. Like I'd pull it together for an early morning workout. And um, I was constantly, you know, trying to lose weight and get in shape and counting calories while also drinking a ton of wine. So like that didn't work so well. The weight loss didn't quite happen. Um, and then I started, you know, somewhere – I was climbing the corporate ladder. I bought a house. I had my son. And I started trying to sort of moderate um, and manage my drinking. So I would only drink at home. That was one That was one strategy. So I wouldn't have to worry about driving. Or I would only drink when I was out. That was another one. So that I wouldn't have more than three drinks at a time. But then I'd just drink when I got home. Um, <laughs> I, I tried only drinking beer or only drinking white wine because I didn't like that as much as red wine. Um, you know, all these things that just did not work at all. Um, I would buy a box of wine so I wouldn't feel compelled to, like, drink the whole bottle. That was that was one thought that, you know, it's just that I, you know, feel like I have to finish the bottle so it doesn't go bad, which – is crazy, right? Like a bottle of wine can be corked for more than one evening. <laughs> um, so if anyone out there is thinking about the box wine strategy, I'll kind of save you that experiment because it did not work, <laughs> right? To help me drink less, oh, like that was not a good raise idea. Raise hand. You, because you know what? The, yeah. bottle, uh, the bottle you can monitor and you know, right? you, but there's a visual. I mean, not that it's better, but but you can't see what's in <laughs> that box, and neither can anyone else. And so, to me, that it it, it it's to me it was a hallmark of prog, um, progressing along the spectrum deeper into addiction. Those two things you just said: one, when, when you start putting rules on it and trying to control it with parameters, and they don't work. I mean, that's the, your first sign that you're moving deeper into the spectrum. And yes, when you start, I, I would just say like the second you bring a box of wine into your house and or two and think that this right. is going to be the solution, you're just really, you're becoming more yeah. entrenched. You're in That's trouble. my experience. Well, and later, <laughs> like I remember, you know, later when, um, oh my God. So, you know, like my husband clearly knew that I love to drink. Right. Um, and, you know, I would drink a bottle of wine a night, which, you know, in my mind, like, okay, that's a, reasonable ballot, which looking back, I'm like, oh my God, what the hell was I thinking? Um, But then I would kind of like got to the point where I kind of needed like one more glass. Like I just needed one more glass. So I would open a second bottle of wine, you know, the Tuesday night, whatever. 
And my, I remember my husband looking at me at 10 p.m. and just being like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Why are you opening a second bottle of wine? Um, which I, of course, like, took away. And I was like, God, he's so judgy. <laughs> what the heck? Um, so I decided to solve this problem because he was so judgy, right, um, by buying two different kinds of wine, right? So I really loved the Chateau Saint-Michel Syrah that, like, you know, had a cork in it. But then I started buying a second um, kind of wine, like with a screw top. So I would drink my bottle. So he could tell I drank my bottle, which again, looking back, I can't believe I thought this was okay. But then I would have a second bottle of wine in the wine rack that had a screw top. So when he would like go do something, I'd like pour myself really quickly a glass of wine out of the screw top. So I could have more than a bottle without him, you know, being all judgy about it. Um, and and actually, that, even for that to feel normal, that. D- doesn't yeah. that, like, like the, the, the deception, like that's another hallmark of moving deeper into the, the spectrum of addiction is, is that it's like the hiding and deception and the normalization of it. I mean, yeah. Right, because if I just if I'd have pointed that out to you at the time, say we're neighbors, or maybe I was the Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, and I was like, "Hey, Casey, <laughs> what you doing?" Yeah, it would make perfect sense in your mind to say, "This isn't a problem. This is a solution to a problem." <laughs> and I was so <laughs> defensive. I was so defensive. Like my husband tried to say a few things to me every once in a while, and you know, now that I'm sober, we've talked about it, and he was just like you would just get so angry. Like if I said anything that I just stopped, I stopped mentioning it. Um, I did like, I knew enough to be like, okay, if he ever pulls out this bottle of wine from the wide rack, it sees it's like a quarter full. He'd be like, what the heck? <laughs> like, that's weird. But like at the time I was like, I was like, okay, this is just so he doesn't give me any trouble. Right. Um, now let me ask you something, Casey, do you, when he says you would get so mad, do you remember that? Do you do you think did it feel different to you as you look back on it or do you remember getting mad or did you think you were not showing it? Um I think I was just I do remember being super defensive. Like a friend of mine told me that she thought I drank too much and um that I was, you know, going to hurt my kid and like just psychologically, not physically at all. Just, you know, this isn't good for you. This isn't good for your kid. This isn't good for your marriage. And I was so defensive about it. And, you know, I was kind of this martyr, like I work so hard and my life is so stressful. And, you know, this is my only treat. Like I don't get to go out or go on vacation or, you know, like I'm working so late every night. Um, you know, I'd sit there working on my, I was at a startup and I'd be drinking and, you know, now in retrospect, I did not realize that, you know, it was this weird cycle of feeding on itself that I, I didn't realize that if I just stopped drinking, my life would be so much easier. I would have, be able to have the same job and the same marriage and the same wonderful child who is amazing and not feel so stressed and so put upon if I just put down the wine like I felt like I needed the wine and I didn't realize that if I just didn't drink I would be able to move through life with like peace and ease and flow and optimism like 
it was just part of the problem, but I didn't see it. Do you think that um, you were also taking on more things? Like I sometimes see that there's a little bit, like for the people pleaser, overachiever type, but and I identify as, you know, a, a person in recovery from that as well. But I, I think that I said yes to everything. Um, sometimes I feel like it was my addictive brain that was saying yes to everything because then that would justify my stress level. And so even as I was like, oh, my God, of course I drink. I do too much. But then, oh, well, can you do one more thing? Yes, I can. <laughs> you know, Because that was it was almost like a catch 22. Like as a people pleaser, you know, I said yes to everything because I needed that approval. But then I like doing too much made me feel exhausted and bad about myself and so I feel like my sometimes my addiction pushed me or my like not just the addiction but wrapped up in that whole like codependency and maladaptive thinking and all of that pushes you to take on more than you should because you want the approval but then at the same time carrying that unnecessarily heavy load feeds the addiction and so it's just like it's just a cycle um so how did that, yeah, did I mean, that change for you overcompensating. over time? Yeah. Like yeah. I was overcompensating for everything to try to like prove that I didn't have a problem, you know, even to myself. Like I, I was working so hard to keep it all together. I, you know, when you're drinking, I was trying so hard to keep every appointment straight in my mind to work out every morning, even though I was like incredibly hungover to make sure I didn't miss any business emails or deliverables to go on every errand, right. To do it all myself. Um, and I was, it was just, my nerves were frayed and my sleep was terrible and my anxiety was off the chart. And now in sobriety, I've gotten so like, I'm really focused on emotional sobriety and how important that is. Um, and how important it is to take care of myself. Like I can't get too overwhelmed or I can't get to the point where I feel like everything is too hard because that's sort of a signal that you're sort of in, in danger uh, in my mind going back to drinking. And so I am so much better at like every morning I kind of wake up and now instead of being like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so screwed up? You know, why did I do it again? Like I wake up now and I think, how can I take care of myself today? And I just sort of review the day and I've gotten really, really good at like identifying my feelings, like being like, do I feel bored? Do I feel overwhelmed? Do I feel anxious? Do I need to connect with someone? And just really like thinking, what's one thing I can do today to take care of myself? Um, And it's, I mean, my God, I'm so much happier. I was I didn't realize how unhappy I was when I was drinking until I got some space away from it. And I, you know, I almost laugh sometimes when people talk about being in recovery, you know, quote unquote, not that I don't think of myself as being in recovery. I do. But the reason I laugh is that when I was drinking, I was literally recovering every single day of my life. Like, Um, I would spend 20 hours a day mentally and physically recovering from three or four hours of drinking. I remember looking in the mirror every morning and putting on my makeup and looking terrible, by the way. And, you know, my eyes were just bloodshot and watery. And 
I thought they were starting to get yellow. And I'd walk to the bus stop with my five-year-old who was in kindergarten. And my head was just killing me. It was just killing me. My eyes were all watery, like I couldn't keep my eyeliner on. And I was shaky. I didn't want anyone to look at me too closely. I kind of thought, oh, my God, if they knew how much I drank, they wouldn't want their kids to hang out with my kid. And I mean, that was recovering, right? Like every day of my life. Now I'm just living like I'm happily, peacefully living. And I mean, you know, that's it. That's a crazy thing to me. Just thinking about the daily recovering from drinking. That was really awful. You know, I think you're really onto something there because sometimes the language that we use around just talking about this, sometimes people get tripped up by it. And I'm sure if I said to our listeners right now, raise your hand if you hate the word recovery, you know, there would be a good percentage of listeners who are like, yeah, I hate that word. I'm not sick. Or, you know, like I, that, that word doesn't capture it for them. And I, I, what you're saying is like kind of setting off light bulbs in my head because like to me, what you were doing was just like survival. But what you're saying yeah. is like you, you were kind of like crawling back up from the depth every day just to get to level ground and then throwing yourself back down into the pit. right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and like recovery as we, so every day was like a climb uphill for you. So then what word would you use to describe what I'm what I am labeling as recovery, but I agree I would be happy to find a better word for it. You know, sober living or or living, as you say. Like, what is it? Just like being present, being we. Like, how do you put would, language around I that now? I would call it taking care of myself. Like, I'm mm. taking care of myself and being kind to myself, maybe for the first time in my life. Um, mm. And I thought that when I was drinking, I was taking care of myself. I was like. This is my only treat, which is so messed right. up. Um, and it was, it, was, it was sort of a sledgehammer that I used for everything, right? And I think we all do. Like, you're bored, drink. It'll be fun. You're sad, frustrated, angry, drink. You're celebrating, drink. It'll make it even better. And I now, like, whenever I used to feel feelings, especially anything negative, which somehow, like, growing up, you just were not, you know, the mantra was, like, I think because we were in Africa and South America, like, you're so lucky. You're so blessed. Your life is so good. What do you have to complain about? Um, so, like, any negative emotions were, like, basically to be glossed over as quickly as possible, um, which is true, right? When you look around you and people are struggling for survival um, and really, you know, in tough countries and, and not enough income and work opportunities, right? It's hard to it's hard to think that you have any problems at all. But what happened there was I wasn't good at saying, I feel lonely. I feel anxious. I'm really scared. Um, I'm mad, you know, like you weren't ever allowed to be mad. Um, and so now that I'm not drinking sort of by force, by necessity, I'm really good at like, okay, I'm feeling X. What am I feeling? What do I need to do to make myself feel better? Um, do I need to reach out to someone? Do I need to, I'm so much better at sharing my feelings and at taking time for myself. I mean, I would never, you know, now I, um, I read a book on Saturday afternoons. Like when I was drinking, I would never do that. Um, my only treat was wine. 
right? Um, and now, you know, I had to, I prioritized going to therapy. Um, I do things that interest me, like going back to coaching school and even like going on, I went on a bunch of, um, which I think you have too, like the She Recovers retreats. I went. I love them. Oh my God, mm-hmm. they were the best. And I can't imagine before I quit drinking, um, taking five days and money and vacation time away from my husband and kids to just do something for myself. And now I don't think twice about it. Now I'm like, nope, you know, this is good for me and I need it and I want to take care of myself and it's just something I want to do and I deserve it. Like this is my life. Um, And I'm so much of a better mom than I ever, you know, like you think that might be selfish. It's not like when I compare how much, you know, when I was drinking, I would be on the couch on Saturday mornings being like, oh, don't jump you know, to my daughter. Like, mommy doesn't feel so good. And now it's just all about cuddles and love. And, you know, don't get me wrong. They still frustrate me. But when they do, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go take some time for myself. Like, y'all be cool, you know? <laughs> what what res- response did you get when you started to do that? Because that was a really difficult thing for me I remember I literally remember and not that I was a complete doormat my whole life but I I remember the first time that I made a conscious choice we were ordering dinner in and I remember saying I don't want pizza instead of well, what do you want honey <laughs> and I kind of like held my breath afterwards as if like after 25 years of marriage, will my husband still love me if I don't want what he wants for supper? And it was no big deal. And I thought, oh my God, I have been like so many times we make these people pleasing decisions and think we're being selfless and giving and accommodating over things that other people don't care about, you know? And you're so afraid to inconvenience someone else. Yes. Yes. And that like that small thing stays in my mind because it I'm I'm sure my husband does not remember that day and I he probably will tell you it was not the first time I said I didn't want pizza but it was the first time I stopped myself in that rote mode of just just laying down and and it kind of I had like this ping of I'm still lovable like I don't have to earn people's affection for me by being this wet rag all the time or by anticipating their needs. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, it's really annoying being around someone who's a people pleaser. It's really annoying. They're always doing things. Like you're killing me. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? Yeah. Thank you for doing X, Y, and Z before I asked you to, but you know, I was kind of looking forward to, whatever, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. um, anyway, well, I, do, was, I remember my hardest thing and, and looking back, I mean, it's amazing how far you come. Cause I wouldn't think about it twice now, but I was, you know, I had been sober for about five months and this big thing happened at work where, you know, the team just got really small and it sort of kicked in my, um, survival mode. You know, I have that you know, lingering, oh my God, I'm going to, I have to take care of myself no matter what. And I need to keep my job, but this is so hard. So I had really intense anxiety and sort of now I look back at it as sort of a panic episode, but uh, it felt really physical. And 
I knew I did not want to go back to drinking. That was like my, I was like, no, I'm not doing this again. I'm not going through this again. Um, Cause I knew I wanted sobriety. I saw people who were sober. I saw them living their lives, you know, bike. All these women I knew were like biking across the Golden Great Bridge and going to gratitude group gets togethers and San Fran. And I was like, I'm not going back to my couch and hating myself. So I decided to go to therapy and found this amazing therapist. I was just like, I used to drink. I quit drinking. I'm feeling this way. I'm not going back. So you got to help me. And um, it was hard for me to basically ask my husband to be in charge every Tuesday night of our two kids and pick them both up and get them dinner, which is crazy. I mean, Hey, my husband's amazing and he's great with the kids and we split stuff, but he's also a baseball coach and I'm kind of in charge or I was at the time of both kids for like three months straight every single evening. Right. But I was terrified to ask him for this one night and that was on me. That's not on him. Um, But I was really, you know, scared to prioritize myself and to tell him, that I needed this and I did it and I felt guilty. And then, you know, it it was fine. And I would come home and the kids would be, you know, around the fire pit with him and they would be roasting hot dogs and s'mores. And they were so much happier than when I was home and, you know, trying to make them eat like chicken. Um, (laughs) And it was fine. And Mike got used to it. He got used to it. And, and then I also, um, one of the things that really, really helped me was, I was counting my days, which I know a lot of people hate counting days. For me, I loved it. I got this day counter app. Um, mine was, I quit, I'm done drinking. And they calculate like not only your days and hours and minutes, but also the money saved and the calories saved. Oh, I saved. love that. Yeah, oh, I my love God. that. So within one month, um, I saved $550 not drinking, like 550 Amazing. bucks. And I saw that as my, like, health and happiness fund. That was my mm-hmm. sober money. And um, I used it to hire babysitters whenever I wanted to do something and my husband was busy. And I didn't feel any guilt about it. And I worked with a sober coach, and I paid for her with my money out of my sober fund. And she was amazing. It was so helpful to have someone to, you know, I emailed her, like, five days a week for two years just being like, Hey, this is coming up. I'm nervous about X. Um, I'm on day 12 and I feel like awful. Um, so I use money for that. I use that money to get massages and pedicures and sushi on a Friday night. Like that was just, I looked at those dollars and I was like, this is the me fund. I would have spent it on wine poisoning myself. And mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. now, Oh my God, three years, I think I've saved like $21,000. And I'm always like, I can go to the she recovers retreats. That's my, I didn't kill myself. money, you know? Yeah, I know. And I, it's funny how many people say like, I can't afford to do X, Y, and Z. And I get it. I mean, I do get it, but we managed to afford alcohol. So, you know, what, I mean, well, not only financially, like, you're such but a like, cheap date now. Like you're such a cheap date. <laughs> I'm like, I know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I find that like, you know, that's really empowering too. When you realize, I mean, whether, whether you spend that money on yourself or just realizing you're not taking from your family's basic yeah. funds yeah. anymore. Right. Um, not only money, but time and your energy and capacity. I mean, it's amazing. 
Casey, in the time we have left, I want to talk about the sobriety starter kit that you oh, created. Yeah. So let's hop over to that. So it's sobrietystarterkit.com. Yes. And there's a fantastic free resource there. Um, tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I created it. It's called 30 Tips to Get You Through the First 30 Days. And it is, you know, as I'm looking back, all the tools and tips that helped me get through the first 30 days. I needed, you know, I tried in 2013. Um, I got a ton of information, a ton of resources. I went to AA for four months. Um, it didn't actually jive with the philosophy that I, the way I wrapped my head around not drinking. And in 2016, when I was ready to quit, um, I knew enough that I wanted to go a different way. Um, and so I ended up quitting drinking without, um, without going to AA. I know it works for so many people and the people there were so kind. Um, but I needed, in my mind, sort of just the practical block and tackling of how do you go about both thinking about not drinking and also the physical, you know, what do you do? Like, what do you do on day two? How am I going to feel? What do you do? Um, what do you drink instead of wine? Like, what do you tell people or not tell people? Like, your husband, your coworkers, like, they're going to notice <laughs> that you're no longer downing a bottle of wine tonight. Um, and so I put together sort of this, you know, 30 things that really helped me. Um, and some of them, you know, are not rocket science. A lot of them aren't. There are things that I kind of pulled from, um, you know, I'm a member. I don't know if I mentioned it. The, the BFB, this Booze Free Brigade, which is just this incredible group of people who quit drinking or try and quit drinking on Facebook. It's secret. It's a little hard to find, but they are just the most amazing, open, honest, helpful people I found on the internet. Um, and so a lot of tips and help I got from them, but it was sort of buried in like comment number 37 on a string I read. So kind of pulled it all together. And a lot of it is, you know, um, write down how you feel, like the day you're going to quit drinking, write down how you feel right now and why you want to stop drinking. Um, I'm very much about looking forward to where you want to go, not looking back. But, you know, as you get away from your last day one, it really helps to remember how bad it was, like how you felt what you mm-hmm. wanted, you know, I felt, I felt doomed. I really felt like I was going to ruin my life um, and my kid's life and my husband's life. And it was going to be my fault. And I never want to feel, I don't feel that way anymore. Um, I feel hopeful and optimistic and capable, but um, that's really helpful. Also for me, setting a goal of how long I was going to not drink that wasn't forever or never again, but also wasn't like not tonight was incredibly helpful. My goal was a hundred days and I was really focused. I worked with it with my sober coach on making it to that number. Like on my calendar at work at home, I wrote down, you know, 10, 20, 30 counted out the days. I had a post-it note at my desk where I would write down 16 and the next day I'd take it off and write 17. And it wasn't a punishment. Um, it was, it was like, I felt like every day I got was getting me further away from my last day one. Like I was building this wall between mm-hmm. me and drinking. And, you know, I knew, 
I remember at four months sober, I had this family trip to Italy and Croatia with my family and my husband and my son. And I was like, how do I not drink in Italy? Like Mike and I used to go and I would drink a craft of red and he'd drink a craft of white, like in the sunshine in the afternoons. So having that hundred day goal made me really focus on like, what do I need to do to get through this trip in a really positive way? And, um, I did like, instead of wine crawls, I did gelato crawls with my son. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he gelato. I think he thought I was like the best mom ever. Um, <laughs> you know, and instead of sitting in the restaurants drinking wine with all the adults, which was so boring, like I went outside with the kids and I like watched the adults inside and I was just like, God, they're making the kids sit out here for an hour by themselves. You know, like that's really kind of selfish, but I never realized it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to ask you a question about setting a goal. Um, yeah. So what happens, what do you recommend people do when they hit that goal? Because, you know, I've, I've I always worry when someone says they're doing dry January or a yeah. hundred day challenge um, that they're planning they're go back to drinking. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Like, what do you do? What do you recommend happens? I know well, you're, you're mind, for the first yeah. thirty days. So the, I mean, setting a goal gets you through that first thirty yes. days. But then, how did you feel when you hit your goal? Well, in my mind, I knew I wanted this to be my last time, and I had quit for a year, and then I'd gone back to drinking for two years. So, for better or worse, I knew that it didn't get better. Like I had that period of experimentation. Um, but for me, having a hundred day goal just, um, kept me really focused on not drinking for a period of time where I had to, I had to actually figure out how to live sober and I couldn't just white knuckle it or, and if I thought about forever, it would just trigger my mind to be like, well, what about when my daughter gets married? What about when I go on this vacation? And Mm -hmm. I didn't need that. I needed to just, I needed to just stop drinking and yeah. not trigger all my crazy thoughts about, oh, my God, what does it mean? Am I an alcoholic? Like, will I never drink again? Can I do this? So, But I knew that I didn't want to go back to drinking. So when I got to 100 days, and for my first 100 days, I didn't tell my husband anything more than um, anything more than I was not going to drink for 100 days. It's like this health kick to lose weight and get in shape and be healthy. I don't think he thought I'd make it a week because I'd never made it a week before. Um, But I did during that time period, I invested in so many things to keep my head right. I knew I didn't want to go back to drinking. So I did, I did the sober coach, which was awesome and amazing and just so helped having someone who got it. Um, I signed up for hip sobriety school when I was 60 days sober because I didn't want to relapse on my trip to Italy. I didn't want to have that be the trip where I, you know, drank and then went back to countless day ones. So I got all this more information about what alcohol does to your mind and your body and just tools for my toolkit. And I listened to a million um, sober audios and podcasts and, and really tried to meet friends online, which became my best friends in real life. So I was not complacent during that time period at all. And when I got to 100 days and I knew I was going to do this, I said, okay, that feels great. I'm going for 180. And it was at that point that my husband was like, whoa, okay, really? Right. Um, and 180 so it's days like got giving me through, yourself like, a chance. 
Yeah. 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 Give and yourself a chance sort of to like slow, see how it feels, right? Yeah. And it was a slow introduction for my family too. And my husband, like I had a bunch of fears, which I think anyone has about like, will you be fun anymore? Will your husband still like you? What will you do on dates? Like how you have sex? Like, you know, all these things that, um, that were fears both for me, but also if I told him I was never going to drink again, I thought it would be fears for him. And by the time I got to a hundred days, we'd been on a bunch of dates and we'd been on vacation together and, and he could see that I was actually happier than I used to be. And, um, you know, he'd kind of gotten used to it. So when I said I was going for six months, he was like, okay. Like it wasn't a, a huge deal for him because I'd already done it. And by then sort of between 100 and 180, I told him a lot of stuff that had been going through my mind and, and you know, my struggles um, that he never knew before. Like I didn't realize how much it was in my head and how much I was mm-hmm. just internalizing all that angst. And by the time I got to six months, you know, I remember a woman invited me to a wine club and I really wanted to be friends with her, right? Like she lived in, I guess it was a book club, but they drank a lot of wine. In my mind, it was a wine club. Um, And she was like, oh, it's all these amazing working women and we have so much fun and they're so supportive and we drink a lot of wine. And so I could not figure out what to say to her. Like I was asking my husband, I was like, do I tell her I have a running club that night? But what, you know, like what do I, should I just say that I'm not good at book clubs? And my husband was like, tell her you don't drink. You don't drink. Tell her you don't drink. And I was like, you know, and so I told her, I said, oh, actually I quit drinking like six months ago and it's just better for my mental health and physical health and all that. So I, I don't think I'm going to join a wine club, but I'd love to go to coffee with you. And she like immediately was like, oh yeah, I've struggled that with that too. Like definitely dangerous. Definitely need to keep it in check. And I was just like, oh my God, that was amazing because I wanted to be friends with her and she had mentioned wine. And every time I saw her after that, I just felt so much emotionally closer to her because I told her and she didn't reject me. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That goes back to recovering that people pleaser, right? Where it's not like, oh, what do I have to say to make you like me? It's, oh, I can tell you the truth and you'll like me not anyway, but because I told you the truth. Um, I think that's amazing. I don't want to be friends with you. Like that's right too. Like one of the things that really helped sort of alleviate my people pleasing was now I asked myself and it it kind of actually took off an AA saying like, if you want what we have, um, which was helpful to me. So now I look around and like my boss was this like super workaholic woman who was really intent on climbing the corporate ladder and she didn't have kids and she wasn't married. And I would look at her because my impulse was to do anything she said to make her happy and think I was a good worker and smart. And I would look at her and say in early sobriety, like, do I want what she has? Do I want her life, her priorities, her schedule, whatever it is? And if I don't, almost by definition, I need to disappoint her. And that's okay. Like, I wanted peace and a happy family and a strong marriage. And I actually wanted to be home. I, like, had kittens. I love my kittens. You know, like, I wanted to be curled up on my couch. I didn't want to be in a conference room in New York, in a hotel for a week of every month. And like just asking myself and sort of checking in saying, do I want what they have? And just having that bravery to say, if the answer is no, say no, because otherwise you're going to go down that path. That was really hard, but it, it really helped me. 
it's funny that you know you talk about borrowing some of the the great tools that AA has and I'd have to say that um, you know a lot of listeners of this program are 12-step followers and a lot are not and it's a fantastic resource it's a great program and it saves literally millions and millions of lives every year and I I know I feel like adore it yeah, and and also though I feel like sometimes people will go to a meeting, and then they'll be like, "This isn't for me." And then the only alternative they feel they have is to continue drinking because the yeah. only resource they know of isn't for them. So I I'm really grateful for resources like what you've put together here because it's like, all right, fine, if you're not going to do that or if you want to supplement it, here's some things to get you started, and to and to get some momentum going, and you know. The fact is we can go back and forth. So once somebody gets a little bit of time and heals a little bit of their like rigid thinking and addictive thinking, they may find that, you know what, I'm going to try this again because I want to be around sober people. And here's this meeting going on up the street (laughs) every week that I could be at least listening in on. And like all we need is to get started and to keep adding tools. And uh, I, I was someone wrote to me this morning and, and talked about the tools in her sober war chest. And I mm-hmm. loved that yeah. idea, you know? Um, so I really love your well, tip sheet also, for this reason. Yeah. And I know that some people don't want to go online and, you know, there are these secret Facebook groups. Um, one of which is she recovers. I mentioned the BFB, but there's this she recovers secret group. That's incredible too. And it really helps to see all these, hundreds of women and men, but some of these groups are really heavily women who are out there and are like you and you feel less alone and they're, they're living their lives. And, and that really helped me get away from the idea that everyone drinks. And mm-hmm. it, it actually through those groups is where I've met tons of women who've done it without AA and tons of women who've done it with AA. And yeah. you know what? We're all the same. Like yeah. it's just kind of what works with your like structure and mental philosophy and also your schedule and where you live in the world and um, what you found first. I mean, I think a lot of it is just what helped you first. You well, know? Yeah, um, exactly. I, like I love She Recovers, but the BFB is what really helped me during my times of struggle. So in my mind, that's kind of like my home group. You know, like they're, yeah. my sober litter, they're my sober litter mates. We call each other. I mean, yeah. know, it's kind of fun. We, I love the BFB too. It's, it's really my, it keeps me going so much. I mean, even on the times when all you do is just sort of read the posts and aren't interacting with it, it's just knowing that you have your squad out there. And um, listeners, if you want to know um, more about that, just email me or message me on Facebook through the Bubble Hour page and uh, I'll help you find your way there. Um, there's other great groups too. Annie Grace has a great secret group for this naked mind. Um, yeah. I think that hip sobriety, they did have a Facebook group. They don't anymore. Um, now she there's one for kind the of unruffled, unruffled, unruffled. Yeah. Which is great. They have one and she recovers. Love that. And you know, a lot of people really love that it's all women, which, you know, I get to, um, mm-hmm. you know, I met some great guys through the BFB, but, um, you know, I mean, it just depends. And we have some guys that listen to this podcast. So oh, men, yeah. we do love you, but sometimes we love for you. Women... And a lot of my, some of my sober litter mates are men, which is awesome. Shout out to Peter. <laughs> I <won't do> that, <laughs> but... Peter, we love you, Peter. Um, <laughs> and 
but you're right, sometimes um, gender-specific groups can be helpful because it takes us out of sometimes the dynamic that we have, like sometimes our dysfunction involves gender-related issues for whatever reason, whether it's trauma-based or um, just like from our family of origin, you know, like feeling like we really close up around a man because our dad was very authoritarian or something like that. So sometimes being in a in a gender specific group can kind of like take that element out of it for you and let you sort of free up a little bit more. So um, we just have a couple of minutes left here, but the, the tips on your on your sheet are great. So there's 30 tips to get you started. You mentioned some of them, um, you know, set a goal write yourself a letter, know what to expect. And then for each of those tips, you include a sheet that expands on that tip and gives you even more information and resources. So it's, uh, you know, it's like a 30 plus page booklet, just really full of excellent, excellent direction. And, um, and as you say, you know, it's not anyone being an expert necessarily, it's that you've sort of just swept up all this fantastic advice that's floating around out there and put it in one place and made it accessible for people. So I love it. I wish that I had this on my first day. It would have been really helpful and encouraging. Thank and you. Um, thank I, I thank you for creating it because I just think it's fantastic. So that is available at sobrietystarterkit.com, completely free. And um, uh, also on that website, you can learn about QC for coaching and um, the tons of great reference and information and everything on there. Um, I guess we're out of time. So before we go, I just wonder, like, do you have any sort of closing thoughts or words of encouragement for our listeners? Yeah. I mean, I just want to say to anyone who's out there, who's in that really sort of painful place of, getting four days and then going back to drinking and trying again and failing again, that um, just know that every single person who has a period of sobriety or who's quit, like myself, like Jean, like other women, had a bunch of times that we tried and failed. And then one time that it worked and that it stuck. And just don't think because you've tried and it hasn't worked in the past, that it won't work this time. Um, I have seen so many people who've struggled and struggled and then it clicked and they are living really happy, really fulfilled lives. And they can't imagine kind of going back to that place of struggle. And you don't have to adopt a label. You don't have to think of yourself as an alcoholic. You really don't. You just have to decide that drinking is taking away more from your life then it's bringing to it. And if one source of support isn't working for you, there are others that will. And um, I'm really rooting for you. Um, I really am. That's fantastic. And how can people reach you if they want to message you or connect with you? Yeah. What's the best way to do that? Well, if you go to the sobrietystarterkit.com, there's a contact form there. So that goes straight to my email box. I would love to chat with people. I'd love to reply. Um, you know, also on hellosomedaycoaching.com, I work with a lot of women who are just looking forward. You know, they may have drank in the past and gotten sobriety now, and they're on to their next goal, um, and they want to achieve something in their life that they don't have right now. Or I work with a lot of corporate working women who are doing everything but are just not satisfied and want something different in their life. Um, so that's hellosomedaycoaching.com. There's a 
there's a contact me sheet there. And I have a Hello Someday Coaching Facebook page, too. Awesome. Casey, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Jean, and thank you for doing the Bubble Hour. Um, it's just been so helpful to me in my life. Oh, I'm glad. It's my pleasure. And um, I hope that whoever's listening today, you never know, you might be a guest of the future. Um, yes. Wherever yes. you're at today, it seems to go that way that that um, we're just we're like a little beautiful continuum and we just kind of keep helping each other and moving forward and helping the next person. And, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. So thank you for being here. Thank you everyone for listening. That's all for this week, my friends, until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. It's just safe and wait there to rob
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.